and welcome to Table Talk. This is the podcast where we connect current culture with Christianity. And Graham and I love a mantra. We love a mantra. None more so, maybe, than fake it till you make it. I mean, it sounds great, but we just wanted to get someone in who has, well, in mine and Graham's eyes anyway, made it. And uh, check what he thought of it. So, uh, very kindly, Jeremy Marshall, who uh, a few weeks back we recorded beyond the big sea with he introduced us to a guy called ben marathapu and uh, graham give us a bit bit of background on ben because we think he's definitely the man to unpick this mantra for sure so ben he is the ceo and co-founder of a company called sarah so he founded it about five years ago it's now over ten thousand employees they're about 300 million dollars a year in revenue they've raised i think a couple of hundred million pounds in in capital they're a company that provides access to care and they do over forty thousand care visits per day so we thought ben would be well placed as a christian entrepreneur and a very successful entrepreneur to kind of give us his input, his side of this story, and see, like, is fake it till you make it? Is it just necessary to, to start something from scratch? Do you just have to do that to build a company and make it successful? Or is there kind of another way? Is there another mantra that we can we can come up with here? So we thought we'd, uh, we'd have a quick chat with him. Yeah, and you will notice that I'm not actually present on this interview, which is sad, but my internet, my bandwidth didn't really allow it. So next, you'll just hear Graham diving straight in with Ben. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. Don't forget to hit us up, uh, tabletalkfeedback at gmail.com, or just direct message us on Instagram, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. So Ben, co-founder and, and CEO of Sarah, is that correct? Yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah, perfect. And so maybe just since 2016 and founding the company, I mean, maybe a quick sort of potted history of what does that last six years look like? And where is Sarah today? Maybe some stats that you can give us to get a sense of this kind of scale of the company and where it's at today. Absolutely. So at Sarah, our ambition is to empower people to live better lives in their own homes rather than having to go to care homes or hospitals. So we're really trying to take healthcare from hospital to home in the same way that in many other parts of our lives, services have gone from central locations into people's own homes from how we may order clothes or food delivered to our doors or now manage our bank accounts from our laptops or our smartphone. We wanted to create a similar world for healthcare. And now at a click of a button using the Sarah app, you can get a carer or nurse to visit you in your home. You can have telemedicine appointments and you can also get medications delivered to your door. We believe that this is allowing us to provide much more convenient healthcare, but also much more affordable. Um, and we are we've shown that we can reduce the likelihood that someone needs to go to hospital because we're catching that early using technology and data, um, meaning that let's say someone's got a chest infection. We catch that on day one or two. We get them their antibiotics rather than it getting much worse and them having to go to hospital. Mm. And it's been an interesting journey because healthcare is a pretty complex market. It's regulated in the UK. We obviously got the NHS, but. I think, uh, Sarah, we finally got our model together after a lot of iteration in 2019. So it took us a few years and then we scaled really rapidly. So now we are delivering about 45,000 visits a day in people's homes. Um, We have around 10,000 staff uh, with around $250 million of revenues now. And we've also launched in Germany as well. So we've really scaled the company very rapidly, but also economically. We're not one of those companies that while we've scaled, um, the amount we're losing has grown or 
um, we've had to burn a lot of cash, actually our margins and financials improved year in year. So even though we scale quickly, the financial part of the business is getting stronger as well. And Ben, just to get a set, because I mean, that's a, that's a very big company. And you alluded earlier to investors are now valuing it along with sort of listed companies to give a sense of the kind of scale of it now. What did day one look like? You mentioned you've got a co-founder. I mean, was it the sort of classic story of met in a coffee shop and had an idea? I mean, what did that look like? So I had, and because of my personal experience of organizing care for my mother, I was very passionate about trying to improve this part of healthcare. Mm. And then I started talking to friends about it. And one of my friends connected me to Marek. He was also looking at the space and thinking about how technology could make it better. And then we actually did meet in a coffee shop and uh, <laughs> got on very well and thought actually you know maybe we could build something here amazing i mean it, and, and how do you feel when you think about that i mean just six years ago that was the situation how does that make you feel it may be just six years it feels more like 20 years um, <laughs> i can imagine yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's great that we're making an impact it's great that what was originally a bit of a, a diagram on a piece of paper is now actually a real company but i also think we've got a lot further to go the need is just massive in every country, the need for care and healthcare in the home is tremendous. In the UK alone, last year, there were 1.3 million people who didn't receive care who needed it. Wow. Um, and we're trying to plug that gap, particularly as it's the oldest and most vulnerable in society who are unfortunately suffering because they're not receiving the right healthcare. And we think using technology and our services, we can make a difference. Well, it's an incredible vision for a company, Ben. It sounds like you're doing amazing work there. I guess just we've also touched a little bit on sort of going out and raising money and, and that sort of thing. How much, I mean, how much money have you raised for the company? What is, how many meetings would you say you've had? Has that been a long journey? <laughs> That's, that is a long journey. That has been a long journey, Graham. I think We've raised probably over 200 million pounds. That has been used to build our technology, to scale the company. And I think once the you show that the model is working, that attracts more interest from investors. Yeah. And I think we've been fortunate to have quite loyal backers who keep backing the company. Thanks, Ben. That's really interesting. And, and maybe just a little bit around the journey of getting there. So maybe if we go back to kind of 2016 for, for a minute and that moment where you had the idea, you were thinking about getting this off the ground. What did that journey look like? How did you go about raising money, getting things kicked off? Yeah, so Graham, as someone who'd never spent a day working in a commercial setting, it was an interesting journey because I'd always spent my time in the NHS, either working on the front line as a doctor or in a policy capacity. I knew, though, that I was really passionate about the use of technology and healthcare to improve it. Um, I knew that I'd already been through a challenging experience of looking after my mother after she fractured her back and thought that better was possible and it would be right to provide better care for other people out there who were about to go through similar experiences that I went through. While I could have gone back to clinical practice or maybe worked in policy or research uh, some more, it was more entrepreneurial route that I was called to. And I think that jumping into it was really difficult. Uh, I was fortunate, though, to have a co-founder um, who had very complementary skills to my own. So he brought a more commercial and technical series of skills to the company. And I'd come across investors, people who are interested in the space. And so just through a lot of knocking on doors, I bumped into people who were willing to invest in uh, the company that we were going to build, which was Sarah. And it was probably the emotional and visceral connection that they had to the mission of the company that 
really uh, accelerated our efforts as most people who eventually backed our company or joined it had been through their own experience of organizing care for a loved one and they all thought that technology could allow better to happen. It took a lot of persistence, but by the end of the year, so the end of 2016, we had raised our seed round, which gave us the first fuel in the tank, taking it from a concept to actually a business where we started to deliver regulated care services in people's homes, and then we went on from there. So interesting. I guess, Ben, just to sort of connect this back to the to the topic of today, this kind of fake it till you make it mantra, it's really interesting. It's something Jack and I have been talking about for a while. We've been sort of um, seeing things increasingly in the news and documentaries around, you know, sort of WeWork and all these companies that have raised hundreds of millions, billions of dollars sometimes, and then perhaps kind of gone astray. And it seems like they've yeah, certainly been faking it till they try to make it. And I, I guess we were just sort of interested in your experience when you were having these meetings, particularly the early ones, when it was just sort of the kernel of an idea. I can imagine when you're trying to get investors involved in that, trying to raise money to get something off the ground. Was it ever tempting to sort of embellish things a little bit, to say what you maybe thought they wanted to hear? But it seems very normal now. A lot of these companies are raising lots of money. They're loss-making. It seems very normal to try and create a very shiny sales pitch. So I've got a few reflections on that. So taking a big step back, I think whenever you combine people and money, um, there's always scope for things to start spinning out of control. And that could be in a business context, but also even in politics where people may commit to one aspirational pledge and then it doesn't always pan out to be the way you thought it would be. There'll be companies who present a certain aspiration or commitment to a customer. And again, it doesn't always transpire in that way. Boiling that down into fundraising at an early stage for a company or a startup, I think there because you aren't profitable, you're generating minimum revenues, the company's life is almost on the line. Under that type of pressure, the likelihood for someone to slip into that temptation is greater. And so it does take discipline and and integrity to really hold the line and make sure that you are presenting an accurate form of kind of where you are versus where you want to be in future. And Mm. I think many startups and also technology-orientated companies are valued on what they can deliver in the future. Even if you look at Tesla, which is valued more than all the other car companies combined across the world, um, even though many of them are building their own electric cars, much of that is based on future ambitions as to what they can deliver around uh, the use of electricity, battery technology, of course, cars and others, uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, But much of that is baked into what they do in the future. When you start talking about the future, it becomes quite a grey world. Mm. Therefore, I think it's a combination of both being a responsible entrepreneur to say, this is where we are, this is where we're headed. However, there are, of course, these risks. And also being a responsible investor where you know that if you're investing in an early stage for a company, it's high risk. Media also plays a real role where Mm. hype encourages these behaviors and makes them or amplifies them in terms of how poor they can become. And if you believe the hype yourself as an entrepreneur, you're you're drinking your own Kool-Aid type thing, then uh, it compounds very rapidly. And companies such as WeWork and Theranos have unfortunately fallen into that trap, as have their investors. And then it has exploded for everyone to see. And those were very public examples of 
faking it until you make it but then you never did make it and that's when it all comes crashing down and that's when it's sort of you've got egg on your face really such an interesting example about tesla as well i remember there was a really funny tweet i think it was from the ceo of ford and this was when tesla and elon musk were bigging up the fact they were going to try and get to i think it was like five thousand cars in a week and elon musk had tweeted the stats of oh we finally got there five thousand twenty six cars in a week or something like that and the ceo of ford had replied 5,000 cars equals one week for Tesla. 5,000 cars equals circa four hours for Ford. You know, and it was kind of like, how on earth is Tesla valued at more than all of these companies combined? But I guess it does go back to the hype a little bit, right? But I think, Ben, you touched on some really interesting things there around perhaps some of the motivations for why people could get into some of these traps, right? What do you think it is that drives people to do questionable things in order to try and achieve this end goal? Like, I think it's a slippery slope. They'll initially start with fudging one part of their uh, of their numbers or one part of their deck or where the company is. And then it expands from there because the stakes become higher. The company raises more money. It becomes bigger. There are more employees whose well-being is on the line. There are more ways to kind of try to justify why you're doing this. So WeWork had a really funny way of presenting their profits or their EBITDA um, with a whole number of adjustments. And when you actually take that out, you realize that the financials of the company really at that, at that point in time weren't adding up. It's gone through quite a significant transformation since, but that has been a painful journey. So I think there's a slippery slope element. There's justifying it with the stakes being higher. And there's also the reinforcement of behavior. I think people say, oh, well, you know, last time it was fine. So this time it should be okay as well, uh, which again, isn't the right way to do business or to go about yourself. And when you put more hype, more ego into the equation, people just think that they're going to pull it off regardless. And they yeah. sign themselves up for massive ambitions as to what they can do, what the company can do, which is more a function of them as an individual and their ego rather than the company and its performance. And that blurs things even further and makes it more complicated and creates greater risk around what the hype and the mirage is versus the reality. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because that point around ego was the one that was kind of resonating a little bit of, I could imagine that if your self-worth is completely tied to the success or failure of this venture, it suddenly becomes very important that you say whatever is necessary to, to get this thing to work. And I just thought, gosh, I can, I can kind of see, and as you say, it's a slippery slope. I could see that you might just start with a small thing and then eventually you'd be, you know, a couple of years down the road and, and everything would have been kind of lost at that point. But Ben, maybe just to contrast that to your own motivations and perhaps, you know, bringing your Christian faith into it a little bit here. What did that look like for you? How did you manage some of those temptations, I guess? Were you even tempted by that kind of thing? Yeah, I think ensuring that your identity isn't just the company, or the startup, or your work, uh, to your point, Graham, is really important. And if your identity and your worth is based on something else, such as your faith in God and your relationship with him, that really changes the compass with which you make decisions. It means that actually, well, you know, crossing this personal boundary and doing something I know isn't going to cut it is, is not the right way to go, given that ultimately I'm here to serve God rather than to just build the company and build up myself, that really changes the way in which you make decisions and makes it much easier, I think, to make the right decision. If I was in a position where actually I was purely living for myself and everything was in the company, then I think, yeah, I'd be way more tempted to do uh, things that are less appropriate or are fudging things or are grey. And 
we have seen people out there who are business leaders uh, or startup entrepreneurs or even outside of that world, uh, if you look at uh, politics and elsewhere, who have sadly fallen into that trap repeatedly. I think making sure you've got a really strong foundation, regardless of what work you do, I think is is critical. And you know, given that we, as Christians, we live for God, it changes how you view things entirely. And if actually your day-to-day is about bringing him glory and serving him rather than yourself, again, I, um, I think it protects us as Christians very significantly from falling into temptations like this. So interesting. I, I guess I'm just thinking here a little bit around risk, appetite for risk. It's kind of fascinating. I listen to a lot of podcasts that, that talk about this and they say we're almost, particularly in, in the West, particularly in, in the US, for example, we're sort of putting entrepreneurs up on this pedestal now you know when we've got direct access through them through twitter and social media and people like elon musk steve jobs you know these these folks are kind of idolized almost as the epitome of success and and i think we almost as a society we sort of view it as elon musk is kind of all or nothing right and we love that it's this risk appetite that we seem kind of obsessed with and i suppose when i when i was chatting to jack about this and reflecting on it kind of well what's the sort of christian angle on that there was a, I was like, maybe are, are sort of Christian entrepreneurs more boring? Like, do they not have that same risk appetite? And I wanted to ask you about that. Like, how do you feel about taking risk? What's your appetite for risk? I think risk is very related to a person's personality. In the same way, someone may be more interested in doing adventurous, adrenaline junkie sports, right? right. Um, or someone else may be much more conservative and instead they go play golf on the weekends or something. It's, it's really personality dependent. I think as a Christian you're inherently less connected to things in this world or kind of in that if something happens to them, you know that actually you're living for your eternity with God rather than just the here and now, which means that you can see it from a different perspective and with a different lens. And in that regard, it's I think the consequences of that risk are a lot less than um, for someone where, okay, you know, it's all about my material possessions and my house and the wealth that I've built. If I don't, if I lose that, I lose everything. I'm nothing. It's a very different perspective, I think, for a Christian, which is far more appropriate, far more sustainable as well. Um, And that liberates you somewhat to take risks. I also think that, yes, while society holds up some entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and others, uh, just a few years ago, Elon Musk was getting really hit in the press on a regular basis uh, he did that interview where I think he was smoking marijuana. In, uh, yeah, I remember that. Joe Rogan, yeah. <laughs> and then his company was getting here and then he made inappropriate comments on Twitter about uh, this rescue attempt in another country. And so it it swings very rapidly. Yeah. I guess maybe if we if we sort of round this off then, fake it till you make it is this sort of mantra. As we said, it, it feels like it's it's almost become a bit of a default setting. It feels very normalized and very okay to sort of say that. Would you agree? Fake it until you make it has almost become people wear it with a badge of honor in some cases, right? I think it's unfortunately, it's the complete wrong approach when you really think about it. Yeah, I think it's become uh, widely used and almost aspirational for some parts of society. And so I guess when we've done these sort of, when we've done episodes around a mantra like this in the past, we've sort of said at the end, do we think we can come up with a better one? (laughs) So, I mean, I guess from your experience, if you could give a sort of competing mantra that might might serve people a bit better, Ben, sorry to put you on the spot on this, but what do you, what do you reckon? I think with God, 
you can't fake it and you can't make it either. Um, wow. Okay. What, because, what do you mean by that? So, I mean, God's all knowing. He knows what you're thinking. He knows where your heart's at. So you can't really fake it to him. And ultimately that's the most important person. And in a similar way, you can't really make it either because it's not about you. It's about yeah. God. It's about serving him. It's about his glory. Ultimately, everything we have and the gifts we have are from him. So it's not about anything we make. And so I think as a Christian, of course, you know, I'd, I'd say that people shouldn't fall into the temptation. But really, when you think about it and when you think about it for, in the context of God, um, you can't actually fake it until you make it. Yeah. So I guess it's like, yeah, you can't you can't fake it. You can't make it. So do the right thing. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Ben, look, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been a real pleasure and, and so fascinating to get a bit of insight there and hear your thoughts on it. So really appreciate you taking the time. And um, it was great talking to you. Thanks, Graham. Really great to be here. Thank you.